Welcome to my podcast, In the Know. My series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of no-tell. Hello and welcome to In the Know, which is my podcast series where I get to talk to some of the interesting people I bump into running no-tell all around the world. I'm Amal Sarva, your host, and today I have uh, Michael Roos, a philosopher. Well, hello. I'm very glad that you managed to get my name right. It, it, the English word is ruse. And my headmaster, who hated me for six years, called me Michael Ruse. So I'm very glad you didn't upset me right from the beginning. Okay. Oh, good. It was a it was a coin toss, but I'm glad I got yes. it on the right on the right side. I um, am so pleased to include you. I'm doing a series uh, called In the Know, which customarily for the last 15, 20 episodes has been folks who are business builders and entrepreneurs of various stripes that I bump into as part of my everyday travels running this company, Notel. Notel is a flexible office provider. We run lots of office buildings all around the world. And my career since leaving philosophy has been in entrepreneurship. I've built a bunch of different kinds of businesses and mobile phones, smartphones, neuroscience, enterprise software, all kinds of stuff. And uh, at a certain stage, as Notel was starting to get big and sprawl across the earth, I thought it might be nice to take some of the conversations that are happening and disappearing into thin air and turn them into things that other people might enjoy and benefit from and solicit the advice of some of the interesting and creative people that have been bumping into. And that's been what I've put on tape so far. And so folks that have been listening have been hearing all kinds of ideas from Martha Stewart or Stephen Wolfram or various other impresarios. That's the past. A new chapter that I'm opening today with our conversation and with a few others is around the fox and the hedgehog. And I have been thinking a bit about this concept of the fox and the hedgehog in the world of entrepreneurship for quite some time. And I first came across it when I myself was a philosophy student. I did a PhD in philosophy and focused on philosophy of mind at Stanford um, about 20 years ago and have more or less been out of the field, but have been using some of the ways of thinking uh, in my in my work for many years and really just over the last four or five years have even been teaching about entrepreneurship and startups uh, here in New York at Columbia using a little bit of the lens that entrepreneurship and startups and building new businesses or creating new movements, this sort of work of doing the praxis in the sort of Marxian language is part of a search for truth that has a kind of epistemic quality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been kind of returning to some of my favorite ideas from over the years and reading again some of the work that's been done. And this theme of the fox and the hedgehog, as I search for uh, folks that have thought about it, encountered on it, turned it over in their mind, I think is really an undeveloped, underdeveloped idea for something mm-hmm. that's rather trendy, actually, in popular literature, at least. So I thought, well, let me go find folks who I think are really impressive scholars. And that's how I found you. Michael Roos, or Roos, depending on the headmaster's <laughs> attitude on the given day. Don't do it to me, please. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it, typically, it's a good idea to find out um, who I'm interviewing and for my, for my audience to listen. And I guess, you know, I have the privilege of having one of the premier Darwin scholars in the philosophy of science on the line with us. And I, I thought maybe you could tell me a little bit about how you got to the point that you're at and what are all these other podcasts you've been appearing on? Yes, then, yes. Well, you know, I, I think, the secret to me is they always say the child is the father of the man. And I think the secret to me is that I was brought up as a Quaker in the years after the First World War in Britain. Second World no, I'm not that old. Uh, ah, Second yeah, World War in, in mm. Britain. And um, although it's been, you know, 60 years, in fact, since I lost my faith, 
I think that the early childhood training has had a huge influence on me, both with respect to uh, the the need to try to understand for oneself. I mean, the great thing about Quakerism is that there are no creeds, no dogmas. You know, even at the youngest age, kids are told, look, we can help you, we can show you where others have gone, but in the end, it's your decision, not ours. And I think that's been with me. And one of the reasons why I think I've been a philosopher is because as soon as I started doing philosophy, I said, oh my goodness, this is what I've been doing all my life. Do you mean they're grown ups are paid for doing this sort of thing <laughs> lead me on i think that that's been something which has always been a, a great influence on me together of course with the fact that quakerism is a very if i say social i don't mean just going down to the pub and having a drink but i mean much more in the sense that quakerism is is less concerned about you know thinking about god and worrying about you know whether you should worship him and getting off your bum and going out and trying to help others or that sort of thing and i think i'm very much conscious of the fact that i've been a teacher all my life and uh, for me it's been a huge hugely satisfying thing i say to my students and to my children who <laughs> groan and say no dad not again but i say the only truly happy person is the person who's who's helping others and so in a way i try very much to think of philosophy in these sorts of ways now having been a quaker and having had this intensely religious background uh, and of course, growing up in the 50s, when we all wanted to be rocket scientists and Sputnik and those sorts of things, in a way, it was natural for me in my 20s to move towards science and religion. And you combine this with, an, of course, I'm English, a, a great love of Victoriana. I mean, I, even as a teenager, my favorite building was St. Pancras Rail, Railway Station. Well, it I was natural to again, focus in on Darwin. Harry and, Potter and friends. You know, it was, uh, it, it was one of those things. As soon as I got there, I realized almost like St. Paul or rather Saul on the way to Damascus, <laughs> this was my thing. And I've been working on it ever since. So it's been a great life. I'm 79 next month and I, wouldn't, I don't regret a moment of it. Well, maybe my first marriage, but you know, that's not quite academic. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to fall in love with that St. Pancras railway station. It really it's truly is. And of course, those were the days, you know, when they wanted to knock it down. And thank God for John Betchman, who said, you absolutely cannot do this. And now, of course, it's the Eurostar Center. And it, you know, it's one of the great joys of London. I mean, it's just a, a wonderful, wonderful building. And of course, if you go in it now, it's being used. And that's so tremendously important. It's not just a monument uh, to an old age or something. It's living and functioning right now. And that's very much me. <laughs> and a bit of a tourist destination for the new set of followers for the Harry Potter age. Yes, it's also next door to uh, King's Cross Station. What is it where you can go and take, what is it, platform nine and three quarters? And yes. everybody's queuing up to have photos of them taken. I've done that and brought it back to my undergraduates. And I think it was the only time in their lives when they've ever respected a professor who'd actually <laughs> had his photo taken on the way to Hogwarts. <laughs> <laughs> so in your uh, career in philosophy, I mean, the great preponderance of your work uh, has built, I guess, on this early interest in Darwin. But when we were talking a bit before this conversation, you put your hand up and said, well, I did run into Berlin and his writings and this fox and this hedgehog. This, and was it your first philosophy course as an undergraduate? 
I think it was indeed. I think as one gets to my age, every time you tell a story, it's not quite the same. I honestly think it was Descartes. Certainly Descartes was tremendously important. I did do Plato's Republic when I was away at boarding school instead of scripture one year, which I really enjoyed. But I think it was really Descartes which got me. And, you know, am I awake or am I asleep? And I, my wife says, well, everybody thinks about that, but we grow out of it. And I'm very glad to say I never did that. You know, I suddenly said, oh, my God, people actually worry about whether or not their mum and dad is in the in the other room when you're in the bedroom. <laughs> this is me. <laughs> And so it's somewhere in there, and I, I think the greats that you mentioned are absolutely the same people that captivated me. I think some of the contemporary Americans actually had an influence on me. Rawls was still sort of yes. riding and, and making waves at the time, and I remember coming across Rawls. Right. I, do you know, I think that's true. I think more than the epistemologists, I think Rawls particularly, uh, and it's not because I'm a goody-goody ethical whatever, it's just the elegance of his thinking. Uh, Rawls just appealed to me so much, as, as he did to so many others, you know, it was one of those, I won't say transforming moments, but it's tremendously important. In fact, my son is just finishing first, second year law at University of Virginia, and he's been doing a paper on Rawls. It was just a wonderful experience to talk to him about this and go back 30, 40 years and sort of go over these things and share these ideas with him. I mean, it was very exciting. I, of course, the other person who had a huge influence on me was Thomas Kuhn and the structure of scientific revolutions in the mm. 1960s. And obviously, my love of Darwin was deeply influenced by the fact that, or my interests in Darwin, were deeply influenced by the fact that Kuhn said, if you're going to understand the history of science, the, the philosophy of science, you've just got to understand the history of science. I wasn't the only one back then, you know, young Turks, as it were. And that was tremendously, tremendously exciting. And so if I look back and say, who were the big influences on my life? It's certainly been, I would say, Kuhn on the one hand, and Rawls on the other. Although I think I do agree with Rawls. I'm not sure that I've ever agreed with Kuhn, but I'm not sure that anybody's ever agreed with Kuhn. But of course, the important thing about a philosopher is not that you're right or that people agree with you, but that you're interesting and people want to argue with you. I think that's something only philosophers would say. I think many others complain when philosophers don't just give you the answer, but I certainly have great sympathy for the inspiring power of Rawls. A bunch of our conversation these last few minutes for the non-philosopher, I think it's, it's just inside baseball. But the reason I, I wanted to interview you on this topic is to get to this other really seductive writer. Well, and he, he talked a lot more than he wrote, didn't he? Isaiah Berlin. And, yes. And find a way to get to this, this one paper in particular. But I mean, his reputation as a Socratic kind of wandering figure, I think, is, is far right, greater right. Than, than most. You know, it's interesting you should mention Isaiah Berlin, because, you know, we were talking just at the beginning about philosophy and uh, analytic philosophy and the way that it's gone, particularly in America and, and Britain, in the, the years since the war and the big influence, not just of Wittgenstein, but of Russell and this whole analytic uh, way of doing things. And I have to say, I was never entirely comfortable with that. I mean, I think it's one of those things it's good to learn how to do when you're young, but it's not necessarily something you should do when you're a grown-up. And uh, I found myself increasingly uncomfortable with this. And it's only recently that I've realized I wasn't the only one and that people like Isaiah Berlin 
you know, have been hugely honorable predecessors of me, of people who are really genuine philosophers, but who want to explore philosophy through the history of ideas. And I think that's been tremendously important for me in, in, in the work I've done, in trying to understand the influence of Darwinism, how it affected people. Did it lead to, you know, atheism? Or if it didn't, what did it lead to? And issues like that. But I think these are tremendously relevant today. I think one of the gems from Berlin, I don't know that many people go back to, to Berlin to talk about um, this concept, but one of these gems that's a sort of offhand, sort of tossed out um, duality as he opens a paper on Tolstoy, has really taken a life far bigger than anything else in his writing. I mean, he's a hugely important writer and thinker, both on, on sort of Russian history of ideas and, and more broadly and then ethics and but but this but this fox and hedgehog idea. I wonder how how would you sketch it? How would you sketch it? Well, you know, now you've caught me, haven't you? Because another of the stories I tell at a different pub is, oh yes, the first philosophy of course I ever took was on behind Berlin's hedgehogs and foxes, and halfway through the lecture, I realised that this was what I was going to do for the rest of my life. Oh my God, <laughs> you'll probably have me on Thomas Aquinas. And when I started to read, you know, the Theologicus, whatever the Summa, it was only as I got into the f first pages that I suddenly realized, anyhow, yes, what about Isaiah Berlin and hedgehogs and foxes? You know, since we were talking about this, I've been thinking about it because my wife says, and my father always used to say, the trouble with you, Michael, is you're such a nice guy, but you're a big head and everything you have to deal with has to turn back to you immediately. And of course, the first thing I said is, am I a hedgehog or am I a fox? In other words, am I a hedgehog? I take it in the sense of somebody who has one big idea and wants to explore it for the rest of their lives. Or am I a fox? who is somebody who, you know, is every day is off on a different uh, idea and, you know, tremendously broad and everything like that. Now, I had colleagues in university uh, when I was a, a graduate student who are real hedgehogs. You know, they, they started off with epistemic conditions for belief and the so-called Gettier problem is knowledge, true belief, and that sort of thing. And dear God, 50 years later, they're still writing papers on it. Now, that's real hedgehoggy <laughs> behavior. Uh, whereas, so. of course, foxes, well, I won't say President Trump is a fox, but I think we know what we mean there in the sense that, you know, every Twitter is something new. And I think that, of course, I think we all, more seriously, I think we're all a bit of both. I mean, dear God, I, I would hope we're a bit of both. I, mean, I don't think that anybody should spend all their life just flittering from one bright flower to another uh, without ever thinking that maybe there's something to bright flowerness. And, uh, and obviously, as I say, I can't imagine you know, spending all your life, uh, what should we say, on the doctrine of, of the atonement or something like that. And, you know, <laughs> that's the only topic you can talk about. And if it's not only on, you know, substitutionary atonement, then you not only don't want to talk about it, you can't talk about it. I think at one level, at thinking about myself, obviously, I've been a hedgehog in the sense that I've wanted to work on Darwin, evolutionary ideas, the implication, I mean, the implications of science, but particularly the implications of the fact that we're at the end product of a long, slow process of evolution rather than creation of a good God on the sixth day miraculously. I think that that's clearly been since I was 25, 26, 
and as I say, I'm 79 next month, uh, it's clearly been the guiding influence through my life and how I could do that. But on the other hand, I'm very glad to say, I think I'm pretty foxy when it comes to what I've done with it. And I mean, just to give you an example, a couple of the last two books I've written in the last five years, one was on Darwin and literature, where I spent a huge amount of time going through people like George Eliot and Thomas Hardy and uh, even D.H. Lawrence uh, that I hadn't read since I was a teenager and I now know why, and all of these sorts of things. And then last year I was writing a book on war, partly because of my Quaker background and partly because it was the end, you know, the anniversary of the end of the the First World War, the Great War, both of them Darwinian, but in one respect, you know, about as different as you could get. So in that respect, I like to think of myself as, you know, pretty foxy in that sort of way. And I'm a very happy person to be a bit of both. I, I'm not that, I'm not know, sure how keen I am on foxes, but I, I, anybody who's met hedgehogs just has to love them. <laughs> yes, I think so. I mean, just to capture a few first observations here, one, which I think is really important and part of what's so captivating about Berlin's distinction is the self-recognition that one has as he starts laying it out. So he's talking about Tolstoy, I guess, as a consummate fox and contrasting him maybe with Dostoevsky as this master system builder who goes deeper and deeper into fate and God. Yes. And, and, and that, that recognition is a powerful effect, I guess, that draws you a bit closer to it. But a second one, I guess, it's a more nuanced understanding that in different modes you can switch from one footing to another footing. And, and, and he, Berlin doesn't give us that. I mean, he just sort of gives us his characterization. I, I don't think yes. there's anyone who's written more pages on Napoleon, for example, than Tolstoy. And you might think that the man is obsessed yes, with, yes. <laughs> with that period. Right. Well, you know, you think of some of the great thinkers of the past. I was just thinking of Bertrand Russell, for instance. I mean, on the one hand, you know, the work that he did on the foundations of mathematics, which clearly, as it were, illuminated his life, was very hedgehoggy, you know, that, you know that, that intense work. And yet, you can't think, can you think of anybody who was more of a fox over the 90 years of his life? I mean, the sorts of things that he was doing, whether they were on founding, you know, what was it, sort of alternative schools, whether he was campaigning against the bomb, whether he was, all these different sorts of things that the man was doing. So, in a way, it's not Am I a hedgehog or a fox? It's a question much more of how do I play the two out in my life? And I think, although I've got, like most of us, I have pros and cons about Russell, I, I, he's a great moral inspiration. He is, he is, yeah. And, I, you know, having, having made these first two observations about, about Berlin's distinction and how handy and, and attractive they are in recognition of the sort of world around us and our behaviors, I wonder if you could help me investigate a little bit further, first one and then the other, let's roll around a little bit, if you don't mind, in what is it like to be a hedgehog? How does it look from the outside? How does it feel on the inside? What are the behaviors and what are the special well, virtues? Well, I, I think I can talk to that a little bit because I got into the Darwin business, as I say, when I was about 25, thanks very much to the influence of Kuhn and wanting to get back to uh, the history of science. And as I said, I, I, from a schoolboy on, I, I loved Charles Dickens. When I went to London uh, for six months, I, I just fell in love with St. Pancras Railway Station. And so for me, Victoriana, as I say, was a given. I mean, you know, before you even get to things like Gilbert and Sullivan. So 
For me, coming to Darwin, this was the early years when the archives were just being opened up at Cambridge. We'd got a huge amount of material which hadn't been explored. Up to this time, we'd had practically 100 years of people writing, I won't say psychophantic things about Darwin or deeply hostile, but that's the way it had been. And it was only, as it were, when the historians of science started to, the historians started to say, look, folks, if you want to do this seriously, then you've got to be a lot more serious than you have been. You've got to be prepared to go up there and sit there and go through letters day in and day out, read notebooks, transcribe them, and try to understand what these people are doing. And for me, it was a tremendously exciting experience and about, as we say, about as foxy as you can get to try to get oneself inside Darwin and to try to understand what made this rather, I won't say indifferent, but you know, rather non-talented young man. He wasn't very good at math. He was hopeless at Latin and Greek. And yet he turned out to be one of the great intellectuals of not just the 19th century, but of, of all time. And, and, and as one read it, one realized that, you know, he didn't just luck into it. He was a, it, his kind of thinking was very clever in many respects. And so for me, uh, for 10 years or more, it was tremendously exciting to be able to dig into Darwin. I wrote, ended up writing a book, The Darwinian Revolution, uh, on this, where I really tried to, as I say, be as hedgehoggy as one could possibly get, trying to understand what it was that Darwin was, you know, basically what was Darwin reading on September the 25th, 1838? Well, we know that. I'm, I'm cheating. We know he was reading Malthus on population. But we could pin it down. And that was tremendously exciting for me. Having said that, after 10, 15 years, I guess I realized that I didn't want, that I'd done that, or at least I'd done as much of that as I wanted to. I've got, you know, without being critical, I am a bit, but I've got colleagues who still do that. In fact, I've got one colleague who's been writing to me in the last month who's still doing that sort of thing. I really have trouble focusing on that because by that stage, I wanted to take what I got and use it, as it were. And of course, as I know, as probably you know, this was just the time when the creationist movement in America was, was heating up. By this time, I'd gone to Canada. I was teaching in Canada. And I got involved and called down to be a witness in Arkansas for the ACLU against the creationists, along with people like Stephen Jay Gould and otherwise others. And of course, this started to push me out of the hedgehog mode, much more into the fox mode, where I had to start thinking about, well, what do people think about religion today? What are the, what are the, the basic positions that one can take? And that sort of thing. And I, I had to do an awful lot of homework as I started to broaden my sights out from just being a Darwin scholar to trying to use Darwin scholarship more broadly. To make contact with the world as it is with not only creationists, I, I always got on at a personal level, I always got on very well with creationists because I find it very difficult to hate people. I'm sure I'd, I'd have hate, I hope I'd have hated Himmler and Hitler, but you know what I mean. I could, I'm not saying that I could actually love all the Brexit people right at the moment, but I think I know what I mean, that I could certainly sit down and have a drink with them without feeling that this was an awful experience. I could, I could have a good, enjoy that. And I always enjoyed that with the creationists. But I, at the same time, of course, I came into contact with liberal Christians and uh, people like this. But I realized that I just didn't know 
what was going on. And so one of the very exciting things for 10, 15 more years was starting to broaden my horizons out to look at things like science and religion. Also to go back to philosophy and, and to say, well, I've done all this Darwin work. What does this, what relevance does this have for issues like uh, morality and the sorts of things I was doing as, as an undergraduate when I was doing GE Moore and non-natural properties and all of these uh, emotivism and these sorts of things and saying, well, you know, if Darwinism is so important, if it matters so much that we're, that we're organisms rather than, you know, made in the image of God, well, then what the hell does this matter for philosophy and, and other things? So it was very much, as I say, moving from hedgehog to fox mode. Most workspaces today are vying for millennial attention by creating unlimited beer and ping pong tables. Those are all great things to do. Maybe at work, maybe not at work, but it's completely missing the point, which is that our minds are increasingly taken up by bullshit and by media that wants us rather than wants to give to us. And at work, in order to expand our creativity, to focus our minds, there are a number of hacks that we can introduce in addition to beer and ping pong, like meditation, like reading Simon Sinek, Seth Godin, but that all aside, it's really about the space that we occupy. So if we're in a cluttered space, our mind is often cluttered. That aside, having a space that is diverse as the people are, that is comfortable, that is easily movable, that can be constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed in the same amounts of time, where you're surrounded by other people that are enjoying that type of space is a pretty cool thing. If the workspace can be a definite workspace, but a good workspace, then you're in business. So this podcast is brought to you by Notel. Thanks for listening. It almost sounds like you were ill-fitting hedgehog. I mean, part of your account of, of the hedgehogging years, the 10 or 15 years deep inside the, the library of Darwin's papers, is an account of sort of getting bored of it and maybe looking outside in at some of your colleagues who maybe 30 years or 50 years later are still in that mode. You might look at it and say, well, you know, maybe some people are not suited for it or maybe not suited for it at certain times. I think that's one aspect, perhaps, of characterizing being a hedgehog. I think that's very true. You could be doing it really well, but somehow you get bored. And just today I saw a really, I think, a very funny New Yorker cartoon where God's sitting on his throne and the snake's looking at God and the snake's saying, God, I'm bored, you're bored. Why don't I go down to earth and stir things up a little bit? And, you know, I, that's how I feel. Everything's going terrifically. It's wonderful. Oh, my God. It's so boring. What are we going to do? But tell me something more about the mode of hedgehog. I mean, that's something nice thing more about the wife I'm married to. You know, every day I have to be careful. <laughs> <laughs> but tell me more. Tell me more about uh, some of the strengths and weaknesses of the hedgehog mode. You must have had graduate students. Well, you must I have think had that this is obviously the strength of the hedgehog mode. And I think Kuhn taught us this. Kuhn said, look, if you want to do philosophy of science seriously, you've got to do history of science seriously. And doing history of science seriously does not mean reading a couple of penguins on the subject or something of that kind. That uh, what you've got to do is you've got to start doing it seriously, not just like historians of science, but like historians. In other words, 
historians know that you can't just read the written word, that you've got to dig back, you've got to go back to the archives, you've got to go back to what people were saying, you know, when they got their, you know, as it were, when they were taking their underpants off, and that sort of thing, rather than when they were standing in a three-piece suit in front of the Royal Society. And of course, once you start to do that, then it doesn't mean the world changes, but it does mean that you start to get a much deeper and richer understanding of what makes people tick. Because we all have a facade. We all, at one level, I mean, another, except when we're in a bolshy mood, we all want to give a good impression of ourselves and that sort of thing. And so we all tend to cover up a little bit, you know, the lesser, less nice aspects about ourselves. And I think what the historian said is, you're not running these people down. You're trying to understand them as human beings. And in order to do that, you've got to lift the veil. And um, there's a good Rawlsian term, isn't it? You've got to lift the veil of ignorance. And I found that. And as I, I, my first sabbatical was going to Cambridge in, in 72 and spending the whole year in the Darwin, in the University Library, the UL, in the Darwin thing. And it was incredibly exciting. And I came away, you know, starting to say, I see what what Kuhn was talking about. I feel that I've got a, a feeling about Darwin that I didn't have before. And I wasn't the only one, because there were a number of us working on this. But I, I felt that we had suddenly started to get an insight, for instance, into the methodological sophistication of the way that Darwin was thinking. Up to this point, people had more or less said, well, he lucked into it. And we realized that he didn't look into it. It didn't mean that Darwin invented everything himself. I'm not saying that. But it did mean he knew people who were heavyweights in the field, and he took them very seriously. And even though he may have glossed over it later on in life, because none of them became evolutionists, it was there. And that was the sort of thing by, that, for me, being a hedgehog is all about. Starting to understand, as it were, the real depths of what makes something work. And so Let me, me test another idea, and it's related to Kuhn, uh, everyday science versus revolutionary science. And it may not be a distinction that everyone's aware of who's listening, but I think one of the big ideas that comes from Kuhn um, is that most science is working within a system and a paradigm and a set of beliefs. And right, the normal work one science, does, yes. the normal sort of science, you're sort of taking it over, taking it over. You're doing the third piece of evidence on an argument that will require 100 pieces of evidence, or you're at the 300th piece of evidence on something that's long been proven and finishing out some of the, the very fine-grained details. And maybe at a certain stage, you're working so deep inside the value system, you can no longer see that it doesn't hold together very well. But as a hedgehog deep inside the paradigm, you are... Uh, Belunking away. Perhaps that has some contrast to the transformational or the revolutionary well, mode where somebody I mean, who finds ideas outside. be very careful. People yeah, you know, tend to say doing normal science, hmm. working within the paradigm is, hmm. is boring science. And of course it isn't. I mean, mm -hmm. it, obviously, uh, Watson and Crick discovered the double helix. That was the revolution. But then there was all sorts of incredibly exciting science to be done after that, like uh, working out the genetic code and that sort of thing. Yeah, at one level, it was working within the paradigm. But my goodness gracious me, what exciting science to be doing. So I think, I've always felt you've got to be a bit careful about that sort of thing and those divisions. I mean, I think Kuhn himself was aware of that in his more reflective moments, which... Yeah, help me with that, help me with that. So here's what I want your help with. So the fox and the hedgehog as modes. If Watson and Crick and their third collaborator, who's not so often mentioned, are at the bar, 
and they sketch on a napkin some idea, loosely joining uh, some bits and pieces that perhaps came to them by divine inspiration or uh, by radical contrast. Darwin is deep inside working on a very powerful idea and assembling evidence from many different sources, and he's in hedgehog mode. Both are transformative breakthroughs, one achieved by a hedgehog mode and another achieved through a fox mode. Could that be fair? I think that's probably true. I mean, of course, the fox is always looking, you know, for things outside the loop, aren't they? I mean, at one level, the fox is always trying to think outside the the paradigm at, at a certain sort of level. Is never satisfied. Whereas obviously the hedgehog is somebody who, as it were, it doesn't, as I say, working out the genetic code is not boring or second rate science, but it isn't discovering the double helix. Now, sometimes when I'm hanging out with other academics, and I must confess that I was never quite comfortable as a hedgehog as much as the American educational system for young people. I think that I I, I hear you. By God, I hear you. Oh, my God. (laughs) You know, when I think about my colleagues who work on free will, I'm not sure whether I want them to hear this podcast or not. But they're such nice people. (laughs) Oh, my God. I couldn't do what they do for for 10 minutes. (laughs) I spent the bulk of my youth in hedgehog mode simply trying to accomplish some uh, very minor contributions uh, to put on my CV so I could have a good life, I guess. And <laughs> I was never quite comfortable. I was never quite comfortable in, in this hedgehog mode. I always was sort of looking across um, the aisle or outside the academy um, yeah. to places that were a bit foxier. However, my colleagues inside, you know, in the halls at Stanford or Columbia, they assumed the pose of very serious, long-thinking, deep-in-the-burrows hedgehog for most of the topics that they sought to pursue. And I wonder, as a person who made the pivot from one side to the other, if we could investigate the virtues of foxiness a bit from the standards <laughs> yeah. of academia. Well, my advice to young people is never turn into a fox until you've got tenure. <laughs> <laughs> In other words, stay strictly in hedgehog mode until you get that letter from the dean or the president saying, I would like to congratulate you on. And at that moment, you can say, to hell with it all. I'm tearing it all up. I'm going to join Harry Krishna and do something else. <laughs> but it does reflect a bit the values of our society, right? I mean, expertise and mastery, to the extent that they resemble hedgehog type. Uh, behavior are certainly valued deeply, not only in the academy, but also in business and engineering and many other undertakings. Oh, yes. Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, isn't that surely the truth is that, you know, shoddiness is is no good anywhere. And Mm. if you're going to do things really well, you've simply got to have people who are prepared to, whether it's, you know, working on alloys in the in the automotive industry or whether it's working on, you know, computers or whether it's working on uh, later medieval, you know, poetry or something. You've simply but, got but to if, have if we leave it at that, if we leave the Fox characterization at that, we, we haven't been fair to, I, I think, yeah. ourselves, of course, or to other more Fox yeah. mode thinkers. And I wonder what, what is a more appealing and generous characterization of the virtues of, of the fox-like mindset? Well, I think, of course, it depends on the human being, very much so. I mean, of course, part of the thing is, for various reasons that I didn't necessarily choose myself, I moved 
as a young man at 22 from England to Canada. Now, I mean, it's not like moving, let's say, from Afghanistan to America. It's the same language. And, and of course, Canada is part of the Commonwealth. But it's a very, very different society. And you do have to think in very different sorts of ways about class system and, you know, relations of men and women and a lot of those sorts of things. Even, you know, I mean, when I went when I was a teenager, Middle-class people sent their kids away to boarding school. I went away to boarding school. Well, in Canada, that would be looked upon as child abuse. So I think that I was, to a certain extent, not just that, I was pushed towards a more foxy way of thinking by external circumstances as much as anything. I don't think it was just that by any means. And so I've always felt that my, as it were, I wouldn't say dilettante, but my certainly appetite for for new ideas, new worlds, for travel, that sort of thing, has been, as it were, part and parcel of my scholarship, that my idea of a holiday is not to go on a cruise to the Bahamas. I won't say it's to climb Everest, since what we've seen about climbing Everest recently, but it is to do, you know, something a little bit different and a, a little bit other, as it were. Finding and collecting many possibly small but precious ideas and connecting them together. I think so. So you see, this is why, at a certain level, I want to go back to it. It's whether it's coon revolution uh, or normal science, whether it's hedgehogs and foxes. I think unless you've got your, as it were, your paradigm or whatever you want to call it, in place, where you've got your, you can do this foxy work, I don't think you can be, a, I'm sorry, this hedgehoggy work. I don't think you can move forward and be a good fox. I think that you've got to have some basic training in what you're doing and appreciation for the worth of burying into a problem. Otherwise, as I say, I think you're going to be a dilettante all your life because you're never going to know what it is to bury deeply into a topic, even if you come to a point, as I certainly did, where you want to say, I've done that, and I just cannot bear the thought of doing it again, but I appreciate the worth of what it is. And when I come across other fields, I can, it helps me to spot the hedgehogs, as it were. The people, uh, this is one thing I find very important, as I say, it, let's say, as I move into war studies or something. I don't know the field. But very quickly, I start to see that somebody like Nigel Bigger at, at, at Oxford is a hedgehog. He's worked on this all his life, but what he's got is, is quality work because he's worked on it all his life. And for me as a fox, I can draw on this. To come and confront the hedgehog with a new set of ideas, but with standing that comes from a body of work and expertise in your own discipline. I think Am that's I right? true. I think that's true. That's why I, I, I'm always, I, I, it's a joke. Don't do what I do until you've got tenure. But I've always been, you know, really rather keen on training students, graduate students. I say, I really want you to get, you know, get some solid understanding of how this sort of stuff works. And then you can go on. I mean, of course, there's always going to be exceptions. There's always going to be Bishop Barclay writing first-rate philosophy at 22 or David Hume. Of course there are. But by and large, it doesn't happen that way. And uh, so I'm a great believer in a good hedgehoggy training, even if you're going to be like me, a bit of a fox for the rest of your life. What wonderful thoughts about a really uh, attractive way of dividing the world. Thank you very much. I think so. I think so. But the, the wonderful thing, what a wonderful 
it's exciting to be able to do these sorts of things. I don't want to bring up, you know, atheism, of which I've written about a great deal, but isn't it just so exciting for me? The whole meaning of life is not worrying about whether there's a divine headmaster who won't like me or, or those sorts of things, although I do worry about that one. But, uh, but, you know, just being a hedgehog, being a fox, and trying to see the interplay between the two. That's what, I mean, when you were telling me about your business and starting off, you know, it's the last thing I want to do. But I heard enthusiasm in your voice. You were telling me about it. I think, what is it, office furniture? I can't think of anything I want to do less. But suddenly I said, oh, my God, this guy is alive. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. And in the end, that's uh, the hedgehog and the fox are both alive. Yeah, I mean, at, at, at some level, suddenly it makes sense that, you know, it's this grasp of ideas or, or things of doing something, whether it's actually physical, whether it's thinking or whatever. Michael, thank you so much for uh, spending some time talking with me. I think this is oh, going to be yeah, a really terrific. nice Oh, yeah, terrific. Well, I'm sorry. As my father said, I always talk too much, and I certainly did this time. But, oh, you, you know, were fabulous. You were fabulous. That's all right. That's all right. <laughs> you know, life is so exciting. And I'm 79, folks, 79 going on. And, you know, I can't, I'm looking forward to the next 50 years so much. <laughs> well, I hope you will be sharing this interview with folks. I will send you the, the link to it so you can send it to your Okay, your it's really nice talking to you. And you're terrific. You obviously, whatever, you've got this knack of asking interesting questions, you know. It's very kind of you. That, very that, kind. It's like a good editor, a good editor is, you know, at one level, you don't even know they're there, but you do so much better work because you've got a good editor. Does that make sense? Yes, it does very much. And it's, okay. a kind of, it's a very generous comment. Bye. Bye.